0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jesse Zarley, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Drs. Brenda Elsie and Josh, Joshua Nadel about their book, Futbolera A History of Women and Sports in Latin America, which was published in 2019 by the University of Texas Press. Brenda is an associate professor of history at Hofstra University. The author of Citizens and Sportsmen, Football and Politics in 20th Century Chile, also published by University of Te- Texas Press, and a co host of the internet sectional feminist podcast, Burn It All Down. She was also recently named Fair dire- De- Network network's development lead for FIFA's football confederation CONCACAF in North and Central America and the Caribbean and CONMEBOL in South America. She will design programs, identify issues of discrimination, and provide research and analytical support to further the efforts of the FAIR network. Josh is an associate professor of Latin American and Caribbean history at North Carolina Central University, where he teaches classes on Latin American social and cultural history, sports history, and on human rights and humanitarian aid. He is also the author of Football, Why Soccer Matters in Latin America, published by the University of Florida Press in 2014. Josh and Brenda, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having us. us. Yeah,
0: thank you. I wonder if you could both begin by telling us a bit about yourselves, where you got your PhDs, and what brought you to study sports in Latin America. Uh, I
1: guess I'll go first. Um, Sure. So I got my PhD at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 2007 uh, and then went sort of directly to, uh, to teaching at North Carolina Central. Um, the book, you know, it's, I'm somewhat odd. I think I didn't write my dissertation about, about sports or about, uh, about soccer, but, um, but sort of came to the project. It was in part suggested to me, uh, by, by, uh, someone at North Florida and, um, You know, it had been recreation and sport had been a part of my dissertation and had been sort of one of the parts that I found particularly interesting, largely because I I see sort of popular culture as the best way to get at uh, the way that people lived and went through their daily lives, um, you know, in the past and, and even till today.
2: And I got my PhD from SUNY Stony Brook, and I did write my dissertation on on sports. Um, so my first book, as as you mentioned, Jesse, was Citizens and Sportsmen, which was a, a kind of more extensive and, and different version of the dissertation, but certainly started the kernel of those arguments are in the dissertation. And I was interested in questions of You know, public sphere, and particularly in terms of Chile having a multi party viable system in most of the 20th century. And I was like, what does that mean for popular culture? What, you know, how does that either shape popular culture or how is that shaped by popular culture? And because of my interest in the public sphere, I was interested in civic associations and football clubs were the largest civic associations you know, that were not, that were secular or non-union. So that, that was really interesting to me. And I've always been a feminist scholar or considered myself one or strives to be. And um, and so gender played a central part in that. But when I was done with the book, I wasn't satisfied with the fact that I hadn't done more in terms of women's social history And I read Josh's book. I liked Josh's book and I was bumping into him at conferences. I liked what he had done on women in his, in his book. And so the idea really, really started from, from there.
0: I wonder if you could both comment, um, maybe Brenda, you can start about what this collaboration looked like. This was really a truly transnational book that covers numerous countries as history. So what, what did the making of this book and the research and writing look like?
2: So so many texts.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: many 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 WhatsApp uh calls. <laughs> it it looked pretty messy the the making of this book um but it was a, it was a pleasure. I mean, first of all, like Josh and I have ve- I think we have very similar personalities. Um yeah, we're both we're both sort of energetic but also um have pretty intense family lives and we're uh, you know our pacing is pretty similar, which is key. Which is key. Um neither of us send long emails. That's also very important. Um <laughs> because and, and, and- Oh, sorry. Can I jump? And neither yeah, of us really have like, you know,
1: neither of us have big writing egos. So it was never a problem when Brenda, if I sent something to Brenda and she like cut it in half, you know, uh, <laughs> and and vice versa, which was, which is really important, right? It's something that I think is, is, uh, is not, unfortunately, it's not some, you, you don't come across that that often. Right. Um,
2: yeah. So. so we got very lucky because Josh let me take out all the M dashes. Um, <laughs> And and we use Google Docs and we do have a little bit of a different specialism in the book. So though I think the book reads like a book that really has one voice, uh, Josh did a lot more of the research on Mexico and the writing on that and I did more on Brazil. And that was just about dividing up research trips and funding. And we should thank Hofstra and North Carolina Central and the University of Texas Press and University of Texas Library Systems, all of whom helped fund that research. So we were very fortunate um, to have that. And we sort of divided it up that way. And, yeah, we wrote we rewrote each other constantly. Um, and, yeah, we can't be precious about our writing. If you're co-authoring and you want it to sound like there's one voice, you really do end up merging your styles.
1: Yeah. And it was also transnational insofar as we were not often on the same continent. Um, So uh, Brenda was in Argentina for part of it. She was in Brazil doing research. Obviously I was in Mexico doing research, but then in the United, Brenda was in the United States and about halfway through the project, uh, my family picked up and moved to Greece, so it was really an incredible not only in terms of research transnational but in terms of sort of transnational writing. i think it 's a, a testament to what what can be done with uh, with technology these days.
0: I was very impressed; it really read like there was a single author, and I, I think you did, you both did such a great job kind of tying tying something of this scope and magnitude together so turning to football um much of the history was new to me. Um, I'm not as big of a connoisseur of the history of football and the history of sports in Latin America. But also, I think, for somewhat perhaps more insidious reasons with um, what Michelle ruff Trujillo has described as the active silencing of kind of the unthinkable histories of, of women in sport, and also perhaps from scholarly neglect in that sports hasn't often been included in social histories of women, gender, the public sphere and social reform in modern Latin America. So how do you both maybe beginning with Josh, how do you see the history of women's sports and women's exclusion from sport as contributing to and changing conversations in these scholarly subfields?
1: Wow. Um how do I see that? Uh, um, I mean, I think that, you know, you, you sort of hit on it, right? This was not just, uh, sort of, uh, uh, people being overlooked in the archives, right? It was, it's very much an active silencing of, uh, of women, of women's action, particularly of women's collective action, uh, in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, in large measure, you know, these were collective, uh, the, the sort of, the, the sports were uh, organized more or less uh, through grassroots efforts of of women through um, through feminists, right? Through suffragettes uh, in Costa Rica, sort of the 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 major sort of uh, school that trained teachers, which became sort of a feminist hotbed, also is where sports developed out of. Um, so I think that you know looking at sports opens up a different way to explore some of these questions of feminism, right? That, that have been overlooked, that have been ignored. Um, I think also that, um, you know, looking at sports sort of deepens the way that that, that it, 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 deepens our understanding of, of how women worked together and where they might've worked together. Um, the focus being so much on the political, uh, in the past has, I think, you know, I mean, it's important, uh, but I think that it doesn't get it, again, sort of what are the daily interactions that allow for the political action to take place? And I think that sports uh, were one of those places and, and physical education was one of those places where where those interactions, those personal interactions happen. Brenda, do you want to pick up on that? Sorry. Yeah,
2: I mean, we try, we tried really hard to differentiate the projects of women's history and social history from gender history while doing them both. And so, you know, we felt on the one hand that the social relationships between these women, you know, starting in the early 1900s, and and the book really goes until today, we thought those deserved uh, a prominent place. In, in women's history and in, in social history of Latin America. But we also wanted to be attentive to the kind of circulation of ideologies about motherhood, um, about sexuality. And, and that often, you know, does occur in relationship with competing ideas about masculinity and things like that. So uh, we hoped to kind of straddle both those fields, which are totally related, but not the same thing. Um, so, so that was really important to both of us um, in, in, throughout the book.
0: So the book is really or, somewhat organized chronologically. It begins in Chile travel, and travels to Argentina and Brazil before proceeding to Central America and Mexico. Brenda, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the origin of sports, women's sports in Chile, and in particular, the arrival of physical education.
2: So physical education in the late nineteenth century is a really important part of women's sports. Well, girls, right? <laughs> because because what happens is, as Josh mentioned, there's women teachers are are dominating that field. And a lot of times they're dominating the field, just to tell a couple of anecdotes. I mean, because they have to do things like keep track of menstruation cycles. And that was considered to be something that men couldn't couldn't do. And these what the women physical educators did was that they often form these clubs, you know, beyond or, or pick up games or whatever, beyond uh, physical education curriculum. So like in parks or things like that, and they would get together alumni and things. So physical education is really important for working class girls. It's some of the only opportunity they probably had. For physical culture expression in that way. And there's a lot of different competing ideas. Um, You know, the the national physical education curriculum and here we're talking in Chile of Joaquin Cabezas, is a liberal model that um, uses sport. And this is one of the things that's so interesting about sports history and gender and how they intersect is that sport was this place that became a way to really define physically what those differences were. And in general, they're trying to create as stark of differences between girls and boys as possible you know, so that they're almost polar opposites. So whereas men need to, or boys needed to exert tons of energy and jump and, um, you know, learn how to have physical contact with each other. The curriculum for girls is almost the opposite where it's supposed to be harmonious and light and not develop too much mus- muscle mass Um, that would be aesthetically displeasing. And so physical education really is designed to, to be totally opposite, but so rhythmic gymnastics stuff like that. However, um, you know, girls and and their teachers don't listen to everything that they're that they're told, if you can believe it, and they 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 play all kinds of games of um, that are not. And we have evidence of that. The first evidence we have of women's soccer team is in. Chile in 1910, Team Talca from Santiago, which is a girls school, even though it's very clear in the national curriculum that girls should not be playing soccer. It is not suitable for them. So those are the early years um, that we, you know, traced are, are some of these. These stories, and in the case of Chile, it's a woman named Juana Gemmler. But there's there's a lot of them all over, like Claudia Court in Brazil, and it's it's also a kind of transnational network. We know that these women attended transnational or international congresses on physical education, but they're not officially members, and they're not in the notes of the meetings. So uh, you know, um, it's a hard story to put together. We we tried to follow a somewhat chronological order, but it is a messy story.
0: Right. I, so... E- I think in terms of uh, in terms of the messiness to what one of the things that surprised me about the book is with the origins of physical education for girls and the beginning of sports for women and men as well. Um, one, some of the more sinister aspects of uh, themes in the book are um, abhorrent media coverage and think pieces that might, uh, and the origins of what people might call sports medicine or sports psychology as kind of pathologizing women's bodies and and thinking about sports. Um, um, Josh, I wonder if you might comment on the relationship in either the first chapter or any of the others about that relationship between media coverage and and sports medicine and uh, women and girls sports.
1: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, the, as you point out, right, it is pathologized. Um, so as Brenda was saying, you know, the, there were certain certain sports that were basically, uh, or certain activities that were basically fine for women and girls to do. Rhythmic gymnastics was one of them. Swimming was one of them. Uh, Horseback riding was one of them. These were sort of sports that, according to the sort of physical education experts or public health experts of the day, uh, were um, in line with women's quote-unquote harmonious nature, right? Um, And so these were the ones that were um, these sports, these activities were the ones that were promoted by the state uh, as a way to create uh, really healthy mothers, because part of the whole process, right, is is that of, um, uh, of bettering the stock of the nation, right? That's one of the main reasons that physical education programs are developed by, uh, by national governments at this time uh, at all. Um, and so, you know, you have sort of these these acceptable sports are acceptable activities, uh, but once you step outside of those, then you really get into questions of um, transgressiveness, of, um, you know, of sexuality, um, sort of policing of boundaries between heterosexual and homosexual, between um, to mas- quote unquote masculine or masculinizing sports, sports that tend to be rough, and those that will sort of work with the feminine nature, and and those sort of views about uh, masculinity and femininity, about beauty, those are all sort of these very sort of male gaze oriented ideas about what sh- what women should be, right? Um, so again, sort of patriarchal states looking at women trying to to, to to create what they see as the ideal woman. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in, in, in Brazil, uh, in Chile, in Argentina, in Mexico and Costa Rica, sort of everywhere in Latin America, really, you see these sort of discussions about what is correct for women to play uh, or to be active in and what isn't. And this comes out really early in you know, in the public education manuals, right? So there's there's one, one of the sources that we used a lot were these sort of physical education, like Bibles, or, or right? Uh, so different curriculum. Um, there were people who would create, uh, I, I'm blanking on his name. I want to say it's, uh, Brenda, maybe you can help me out here, but I want to say it's Bueno. Um, he basically wrote a, a, a compendium of the physical education manuals from around Latin America. Um, and basically they all... Argued for soft sports, uh, and they left certain sports so they would sort of give the the complete sort of curriculum for men or for boys and girls. Um, and you would see that what was left out of the girls' curriculum, right? So in some cases there would be baseball or basketball, definitely almost always football uh, in the boys' curriculum, and almost always those would be left out of the girls' curriculum, right? And and the reason for that was precisely, as you say, that the media and sort of public health, quote unquote, experts, um, were lobbying against girls doing anything that might um, get in the way of their, you know, feminine development, let's say.
2: Can I just jump in there too? Um, so, So Josh was talking about this Uruguayan physical education leader, Raul Blanco. Blanco. Thank you. <laughs> right. You're very <you're> close. <laughs> yeah, right. Why am I blanking on it, though? <laughs> uh, there's a lot of words in the book. Um, you know, and, and this one of the things that is not only left out, but um, that we found is that that particular manual blamed uh, women physical education teachers for girls' lack of physical fitness. So there's a shift in the 40s and 50s when physical education becomes a respectable, steady career, and women really get pushed out. And that has really major effects that go beyond physical education because the people who are professors, let's say, at University of Buenos Aires in the School of Physical Education, they are also the basketball coaches for the national women's team or the basketball coaches for the you know, um, Chilean national team. And so, or, and they're on the Olympic Committee and they have all these crossover relationships. So when we look at what happens in physical education, it has so much to do with what happens in grassroots sports, in amateur sports, and even into elite sports. So in the 1990s, Forties, for example, one of the professors in the University of Chile takes over the women's basketball team, the national women's basketball team in, in Chile, and he is interviewed and he says, "You know, because I'm their coach, I know women are not suitable suited to play basketball. It is not suitable for them. They're not good at it." Um, that's incredible. Like, who could give him that job? <laughs> Why, does he have job? Why does he have that job? And and so these women get pushed out, and it has real ramifications because they take these really important positions. You know, these men, and they they just you know trash the the very women and girls that they're supposed to be leading and inspiring.
0: You know, and that that last comment, Brenda, uh, is so interesting when you watch. Any women's sport today you think that this couldn't have happened before, but at the, from the very onset, the problems of govern governance coaching media medicine uh have been there all along, kind of dogging uh women's efforts to to play um sports and learn um so I guess to turn to brazil in 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 the in in my reading of the book, I found the two chapters uh on Brazil serve as really fascinating kind of emblems and counterpoints for some broader issues, uh, being worked out through the whole book. Um, it's harder to think of a more kind of fanatical football nation than Brazil. Um, so I was wondering if you could, I think it might be surprising to folks who haven't read the book, um, that it, that, that women's football was banned by the Brazilian government by subsequent dictatorships in the mid 20th century. Um, maybe you could share some stories about the ways how the ban came about and how women subverted, uh, the official and cultural cultural prohibitions um, through things like you you found about like charity matches or circus performances.
2: Right. So in the case of Brazil, what we find is that women at least are playing regularly and in some organized fashion by the 1920s. And what I, I think one of the points to drive home is that the more that football becomes a, part of Brazilian national identity and important to developing men, the further they push women out of it, or the more threatening women's football is. It matters very much that by the 1930s, working class players and and players of Afro, you know, Brazilian families are starting to play. And we think that's part of, or a central part of the prohibition. There is a letter That comes from some random medical guy, maybe. We don't even know. And apparently it reaches to Tulio Vargas. And when he sets up the National Council of Sport, the first thing that they do is ban women's football, along with rugby, wrestling, water polo, some of the decathlon and pentathlon events, boxing but really, for a long time, historians just sort of, or journalists more, over, you know, sort of shrugged their shoulders and figured it was banned because women weren't doing it. But actually, and we have to thank, and oh my gosh, the institutions and in, of archives and museums in Brazil, all of our solidarity with you, but the Museo de Futebol in Sao Paulo launched an exhibition in 2015 and 16 that helped us enormously find a lot of this archival material. And it is not the case at all. It was absolutely not the case. It is easy to find evidence of women playing en masse in the 1930s. And there was a very popular league established in 1940 in Rio. And Getulio Vargas was actually present at the inauguration of the municipal stadium in Sao Paulo, Estadio Pacambu. And a women's match was there that opened it inaugurated the stadium along with a men's match. And so we argue the opposite, that actually it's the popularity, especially among working class girls and women, that is seen as so threatening and the medical evidence for it. The other part of this is that people will say, well, people thought back then or doctors had this misunderstanding and no, it's like absolutely anachronistic. And the medical evidence is phony. They know it's phony. People then know it's phony and the women write immediately saying it's phony and, and inviting them to matches and they never, ever stop playing. They go to court, they're surveilled. Um, Josh, I don't know if you want to fill in some of the, some of the details on the charity stuff.
1: Sure. I mean, the, the, basically women are playing charity matches. It's one of the few places where, where women are able to, um, to play in large measure because it's seen as somehow relatively acceptable, right? They're continuing to take on a, a traditional, quote unquote, traditional role as caretaker, uh, when, when playing, um, charity matches. But even those are challenged by some in the footballing, uh, federation, um, just because there's this concern that, you know, women football actually, you know, as Brenda was saying in the thirties and forties, women's football was able to, to bring in large audiences, um, to bring in, um, you know, to pack the Stadio, the Stadio Pacambu, to bring in, you know, 10,000, 15,000 people to watch matches so even these charity matches later are are seen as somewhat threatening to uh, to the male sport because one of the things they show, right, is that women are continuing to play and that women have plenty of skill in playing the game. Um, and so there's this, you know, this sort of constant, uh, let's say tug of war between the Federation, which reiterates the ban on women's football. Um, you know, in, in 1941, it, the ban is originally made, but in the 50s, Uh, It reiterates the ban at least three times. It does so again in the 60s. It actually bans one team um, from playing outside of Brazil. So there's a a promoter who wants to bring a team to Europe uh, as part of a charity sort of endeavor, Um, and the the CBF, the the Brazilian Football Federation, blocks the team. Or sorry, sorry, the Brazilian Sporting Federation blocks the team from. Uh, from going on the grounds that, you know, they're going to be an embarrassment to Brazil going to play soccer again, falling back on this. Well, women don't really play. So this is, this is going to be, you know, this is the rhetoric that was being used anyway, that women don't play. So it will be an embarrassment to Brazil. When in reality it's, it, it, it's seen much more as a threat by, by sporting institutions.
0: So, in in the Brazil chapters, you raise another issue that I think um, is is very important, given the as when this discussion interview comes out, we'll be in the midst of the Women's World Cup. Um, but I'm curious about the origins of women as fans of sports uh, and consumers of women's sports. Um, I wonder if maybe Josh and then Brenda could comment a bit about both what you found about that and also some of the challenges for entering what what continue to be quite masculine and male dominated um, and exclusionary spaces.
1: Sure. I mean, when the sport began, when soccer began, when football began in Brazil, and this is generally true, I think, around Latin America, I don't think generally true around Latin America, Um, you know, Women were involved from the outset as fans. Uh, it's it's another one of the sort of aspects of of, of football generally that gets written out, right? Um, women's role as fans, as um, godmothers, right? So as sort of team managers, almost um, as in playing ancillary roles within teams. Um, you know, women were sort of crucial to the development of sporting clubs more broadly in Latin America, and thus. Football clubs more broadly in Latin America in the 1920s. You know, sort of when we're in the era of uh, of amateurism. Um, you know, going to a uh, to a soccer match to a football match was was a social event, and so you know we have pictures. We've found lots of pictures uh, over the course of our research, lots of photographs of you know women sort of dressed in their finest clothes with parasols and hats sitting in the front row of of stadiums um you know we we have you know so these would be sort of upper class uh generally speaking lighter skinned women there are also images of darker skinned women um uh, in sort of the in the stands sort of farther away from the field but clearly also in their in fine clothing uh and, and so women are a crucial part of the sporting scene right um, there are Countless articles about um, about women fans fawning over uh, uh, over the bodies of male players, right? Um, so that was always a part of uh, of the of the sporting sort of setup in Brazil, and I think it, it goes back to what Brenda was commenting on before. Sort of as more and more lower class men and uh, Afro Brazilian men begin entering football. In the 1930s and 40s, I mean, professionalism is in professionalization happens in the early 1930s in men's in men's soccer, um, and as that happens, you see sort of a, a gradual um, pushing of women out out of those spaces, right? Um, because they become somehow more "quote unquote" dangerous for women to go to, and as women get pushed out of those spaces. Um, they become seen much more site as sites of male sociability, right? And once they're seen as sites of male sociability, then there are barriers put up to women uh, entering those spaces again, right? And so really by the 1950s and 1960s, you see sort of football much more as uh, a male dominated space, um, it, it, to which, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll turn it over to Brenda. I know she can talk about sort of the use of cartoons and, and other forms of sort of uh, implicit or explicit violence against women towards uh, as they move back into the stadium
2: yeah there's there's I, I mean part of the problem is as stadiums as as football becomes more working class throughout latin america it becomes defined as violent and so middle and upper class Writers will blame the diffusion of it to the working class as, you know, ruining the stadium for families, meaning that there was also a lot of social stigma about women being in what was seen as a violent place. And that makes it harder for them um to to feel comfortable the the pervasive media images i mean in the 1960s (laughs) this is the other crazy thing about sports i just got to tell you sports history historians love to find change right like that's our whole thing no (laughs) we're both our bread and butter change over time right change over time right but like the history of women in sports is a history of um a lot of the same bs um, so okay, in the 1960s, then even these hippie sort of lefty progressive magazines um, for youth would have uh, all of these things, uh, you know, sort of guiding advice for girls about how to get boyfriends and talk to boyfriends about soccer. So it's 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 stuff like that that it just stays the same, and and it's it's not one image; it's thousands of images. And there's ones that are really, really violent. Like there's uh, one I've seen in Chile, one I've seen throughout Latin America that gets repeated is uh, a girl or a young woman goes to the stadium. She puts on makeup, you know, she's there to doll herself up and then she gets hit in the face with a ball. And then the ball, the joke is that the ball has her face on it, you know, from the makeup and it it's, it's horrifying <laughs> like, that that was funny, and sports becomes a sort of back door too for for these really like retrograde racist stereotypes um and and it becomes a space where people will allow that to happen if you if you think until today it's like it's the most segregated space in the americas
0: that last point was something I really wanted to uh at well the second to last point um I think that the, one of the important contributions of the book is it really shows how uh, those those deep continuities particularly in the kind of one what one might say backwards gender politics of both the old and the new left in Latin America during what's seen as a period of kind of revolutionary anti-imperial upsurge in the 60s and 70s um and that 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 there was there was a connection to sports with that um as far as what you brought up about continuities and turning to Mexico, um, I thought it was so interesting that the origins of girls' uh, physical education be- and the expansion of that began in the Porfiriato in the late 19th century. Um, and that that was perhaps added upon by the during the revolution and the post-revolutionary period. Um, but I wonder if uh, Brenda and then Josh, you might comment on um, how the Mexican Revolution um, and Mexican Revolution's efforts on education reached into the realm of of sports.
2: I'm going to volley this one to Josh. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I feel like he deserves uh, the credit for for a lot of that part of the research. So. <laughs> <laughs> sure, almost Josh. Thank
1: you, um, Sure. So, I mean, I think right. If you go back a, a little bit, right? So, the the development of physical education programs was again as as we said earlier part of this broader effort at, at sort of creating new citizens and new nations right so uh, to modernize the, the 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 state and the nation if you will um, and so that's why it goes all the way back to the porfiriato, really but in the revolution you know what happens is there's there are a couple themes that develop in the revolution that sort of add to the role or or augment the role of sports uh, in in Mexico both in urban Mexico and a rural Mexico, because there's a a major effort to sort of bring sports to the, to the, to the countryside as well. Um, and, and one of those is the idea of spectacle, right? Um, the, the, the Mexican revolutionary government, uh, particularly in the 30s and early 40s was all about spectacle, right? They had all these massive parades and, um, and sort of celebrations of of, of the nation um, that included sports and gymnastics and these insane you know motorcycle pyramids driving down the the, the main you know driving across the, the plaza right, um, but in the 1920s what you see with the the, the secretary of education at the time Jose Vasconcelos um, sets up these um, sets up. Uh, rural schools, right? The, the goal here is to to train teachers in rural areas. So they're rural, normal schools, basically, to train teachers in rural areas to sort of bring modern Mexico to uh, to the countryside, right? Because that's a, a major effort of the revolution. Um, and so it, within these rural schools, there are physical education programs that, that develop. Um, so within these normal schools, women and men are being taught Being trained in how to become physical education teachers. Um, And so this is one way that sort of sports spreads into the countryside. But maybe a a more direct way is that alongside these sort of rural normal schools, you have the development of cultural missions. And cultural missions sent uh, basically a team of somewhere between three and five uh, educators into a rural area for a couple of months. Uh, And they would Sort of work in one or two towns, and within those towns they would develop a series of projects. right They would help with the schools, but um, they would help with sort of engineering or agricultural problems that the village have that the villages might be having having excuse me, but they would also send physical education instructors, and those physical education instructors were basically charged with creating sports clubs uh, in order to create some form of community um uh cohesion right uh some form of you know sporting culture as a as a way to become more more healthy uh, but they would so they would create sports clubs they would also help to clear the land so in some cases uh, there's one case where there was an, a, a series of old kilns in one village and the the cultural mission with the help of the community, cleared the kilns out and created a number of basketball courts. Um, and so you see the development of uh, of actually quite a bit of basketball and volleyball in rural Mexico at the time. So this is in the, the, the mid to late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, and these cultural missions uh, sort of left their imprint wherever they went. Right, there were women's, there were, there were girls' teams, uh, basketball teams. There were some places that we found that actually had co-ed teams, which was which was pretty pretty rare. Um, not surprisingly, right, this was not a um, this was not an effort that was uh, of let's say uh, that went off without a hitch. Right, I mean, uh, there was a good deal of the rural Population of Mexico were not in favor of these sort of new ways and, you know, bringing women out of the home, having girls, uh, participating in sports with boys. There was a lot of sort of, uh, cajoling that needed to happen in order to, to, to get these programs off the ground. Obviously, you know, there was the Cristero Rebellion, uh, which was a a really bloody, uh, reaction to, to efforts along the lines of the cultural missions. Um, so, so this was really sort of the, the goal, the way that the state tried to move sports throughout Mexico was through, you know, through basically the Ministry of Education, these rural normal schools and, and, and the cultural missions. Um, and it was pretty effective, you know, in, by and large.
0: So to c- continuing on on Mexico, um one of the marquee events in the latter half of the book and that you you mentioned at the beginning is the 1971 women's football championship in Mexico. I was wondering if you both might recount some of the experiences of the Mexican teams, what that event meant and why um rather than an upsurge in in women's football in Latin America it ended up particularly in Mexico taking a bit of a downturn.
2: So the first women's world championship is in Italy in 1970, and it's organized independently of FIFA because FIFA still doesn't recognize women's football, even though it copyrights it um, as it does all football everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in 1970, there was a pretty active and dynamic Italian women's league Um, I think this is the sort of habit of it coincides with a lot of feminist activity around Turin in particular. Um, would you say that's right, Josh?
1: Yeah, definitely. Okay.
2: And, um, and it's, it's actually sponsored by, um, Rossi, Rossi, like Martini Rossi.
1: Yeah, the, the and, Rossi company is is sort of the, and, the, 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 uh, the cup.
2: Yeah, and that makes a big, that's a, that's a big splash in 1970. And Mexico goes um, to that one. And in the process, you know, they had just hosted the World Cup, um, 68 Olympics. The idea was that Mexico could be the second host in 1971. And there's a lot of stories in the book about how they try to reach out. And the only other Latin American delegation is Argentina. And they end up, you know, so scrappy and and getting all these donations together that they arrive in like two different rounds and then still their coach doesn't show up and they have to borrow a Mexican coach so they can participate, which is a really incredible story. They call themselves the Pioneers Les Pioneras today and they have a great Facebook page if anyone's interested in checking it out. And um, it's, a, it's a tremendous success. Um the the women's cup in in mexico it fills estadio azteca 110,000 people josh wrote about it a lot in um his first book and also for remezcla and other places and i guess i would just say because we're in the moment of the women's world cup that it's worth questioning whether women get anything out of organizing tournaments with fifa and I think that's a really it's a it's a really, really important case. And it's something that the feminist movements come up with uh, come up against all the time is okay, are you going to risk co-optation for development funds? And um, you know, I just think it's a it's a great example of the difference in in women's independent organization. Um, the Mexican Federation does not approve. Um, you know, tries to sanction clubs that help out. A lot of UNAM is, is central to the, to the facilities and facilitating it and the professors at the National Institute. So there, there are, you know, places of support, um, but the Federation and FIFA is not one of them.
1: Yeah. And I would, I would just sort of like, if I can jump in, I mean, this is something that to to jump to the present day really quickly, right? This is something that Megan Rapino said recently in a in a in a press conference, right? Do we do we think that the institutions that were set up to sort of develop men's soccer are the ways that we want to go in order to to sort of develop women's soccer, right? Because these these sort of these institutions were set up in opposition to, in many ways, women's football. Um, And I'm not sure if she has the historical sort of, you know, record on that. But in fact, right, FIFA knows about women's soccer dating back many decades, right? Um, But certainly by 1970 and 1971, it, it directs its member federations to take over women's soccer wherever it can, right? So the idea that FIFA is somehow... Um, suddenly in in one thousand nine hundred and eighty eight with the with the sort of world the unofficial world championship like the the m M&M m cup was that what it is it the coca cola cup can 't remember which one it 's called uh, and then the first uh, women 's world cup in one thousand nine hundred and ninety one right like the idea that somehow FIFA was was a benefactor of the sport is it, sort of um, is not really the case in the historical record, right? Uh, in fact, At all. FIFA, right? FIFA had women's soccer in its hands as far back as 1971 and basically did nothing with it, right? In fact, it, it actively sort of under, uh, underdeveloped it, um, by, by instructing federations to do nothing. Um and so so I think that there's something, you know, I don't know if Megan Rapino knows that, um, but if you're listening, Megan, there's some fodder for you. Um and um but I, I will say that sort of the Mexican story is, is really fascinating because it, it is this sort of like eruption of popularity in the sport between 69 and 71, where you know, from apparently nothing, uh at least from what the historical record that we could find has, right? Sort of the first women's soccer that we know about in Mexico, women's football we know about in Mexico, uh, is in like 1959. Um, But then by 1969, there are two teams that start. And then suddenly by 1970, you have hundreds of teams in Mexico. Um, And it's a really fascinating sort of look at the way that I think, you know, Sort of grassroots organization um, really impacts the way the game develops, right? Because it's it's just word of mouth that that lets women and girls know around the country that there's this there's the development of this sport, right? And so it, it's I, I kind of imagine it as like women who have sort of or girls who have played, you know, informally with their brothers, their sisters, their moms, their dads, right? But Girls who have played informally suddenly, like they hear that, "Whoa, wait a second! There's a league in Mexico City. I'm going to Mexico City, right?" And you did have sort of reports in the newspaper of people coming from the provinces to Mexico City in order to play. Um, and then by 1971, you really have this this massive growth of of teams around the country. So you know, in Durango, in uh, in northern Mexico in Veracruz sort of every major city had a league that you know had 10 15 teams in it at least and in Mexico City there were a number of different leagues uh, with upwards of 200 teams so it's this really fascinating sort of you know uh, story of growth and then sort of again the the demise of the sport afterwards is is a whole other story right after 1971 1972 sort of the the Mexican Federation after taking over the sport, closes down options to play uh, and, and really the sport continues as the result of sort of grassroots uh, organizing by players and, and their sort of volunteer allies. <laughs>
0: In, in your epilogue, you know, I think that's one of the things that's that's inspiring and continues to this day. Having read about a century plus of both the resilience and the kind of as you both describe as the kind of subterranean grassroots nature of of women and girls organizing to play and keep alive the, in many ways by themselves, the memory of 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 that tradition. Um, we also see the persistence of the 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 opponents, the detractors um, that have driven, particularly from 71 until the 90s and the 2000s, um, many of the federations across Latin America underground or into inactivity. Um, lest we kind of end or the book end on a, on a terribly depressing note, um, how do we sit with those challenges um, and think about exciting developments for the future of women's sports Broadly, but um but but football in in, in particular.
1: Sure. I mean <laughs> how to not end on a negative note. Well, all right, so I, I will start with saying, you know, like Brazil continues to be like an amazing um microcosm of the issues facing women's football, right? You could argue that it's a microcosm of the issues facing football more generally, but Brazil has the most talented players and the most inept institutions when it comes to women's football. <laughs> um, and, and that's saying, well, I, I shouldn't say the most inept, uh, but among the more inept, right? Because it has these amazing players, Marta, Formiga, Cristiane, uh, you can sort of Debinha, Polian, you can list off, you know, you could put together two teams of people and have two world-class teams. Um, but their coaching is horrible. There's not really any foresight. It's sort of the idea is if we put the players out on the field, they will do fine. Um, which is, you know, maybe was the case at one point in time, but is no longer the case. Um, but I I think that there are three places that I would say there's, there's really a lot of hope for the sport, uh, for, for women's football in the region. Um, so I'm going to, I'll start with Mexico. Um, so there's the, the Liga MX femenil. Um, just finished its third year, uh, and it's sort of seen solid growth throughout its, its, uh, its three years. Um, you know, it has decent, though not great fan attendance. Uh, it's somewhere between two and three thousand it averages, uh, between two and three thousand people per game as fans, uh, which is not great, but it's actually the second largest attendance in the world in terms of women's fo- football leagues, right? So even if you think about like, well, the German league must be good or the, the sorry, the the English league must be very good. It is good, but they don't have a ton of fans yet. Um, United States, there's a, an average of somewhere between five and 6,000 people per game at, at NWSL games. Um, the Liga MX Femenil is sort of ranked second uh, of in, in terms of these leagues. So that's sort of a really good sign. And it, Even though Mexico didn't qualify for this World Cup, um, I think it bodes well for the future of the sport in the region. And the the Mexican Federation really has taken a major role in in growing the sport. Uh, It's taken a lot of responsibility in organizing girls' soccer um, from from the U15, U13, U15 age group up um, and sort of catalyzing that Within the within the country, so I think that's one positive uh, um, coming out of Latin America, and it's it's a top down thing, which is interesting um, because the other two I'm going to say are, are very much bottom up, right? I mean, I think if you look at Argentina and Chile, two countries that did in fact make the Women's World Cup, will be playing uh, starting next, or starting this weekend, I guess. Um, you know, those two teams are or those two stories. Let's say are stories of collective action. Uh, in the case of Chile. Right, you had an inactive feder. the The team was inactive, and what that meant was that for eighteen months they had no no friendlies, no games, no nothing. Um, and the 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 federation wasn't telling the, the members of the team anything about when they might train, who might be their coach, or anything along those lines. So the women themselves basically organized. Uh, they organized a union, which got support from the the more broad players' union called FIFPro. And that became sort of a catalyst for um, a regeneration, let's say, of of uh, women's soccer in Chile. Um, that sort of culminated in in them qualifying for the World Cup. Um, you know, they they finished second to Brazil, um, and in the in the tournament that unfortunately qualifies women's teams for the World Cup, the Pan Am Games, and the Olympics, um, they they do that all in one shot rather than giving giving teams more, more opportunities to play. Um, but, but it was sort of a, a successive collective action on the players themselves that forced the Federation's hand and forced them, forced the Federation to give the women's team support to, uh, to organize matches, to, to sort of have a much more organized, uh, uh, approach. Right. So that's one great story, I think. Uh, I mean, I don't think that Chile is going to make it very far in the tournament. That's a whole other story. Uh, and the same thing goes in Argentina. It's a great story of collective action. Um, you know, the Argentine players were not getting their per diems there, which were less than six, uh, less than $10 a day to go to training, right? So they were basically uh, volunteering their time. Um, Volunteering their lives to the Argentine Federation, and and got fed up with it, uh, and went on strike, um, and then um, made sure that their voices were heard through collective action, through this strike, and then when they did play, they were sort of calling attention to um, to the Federation's lack of res- uh, of interest in their uh, in their plight and the lack of interest in their uh, in their in their team, really, um and in so doing again, they sort of created this uh i think really tight bond among the team uh and and have effectively sort of changed the gr- changed the groundwork in Argentina right there was just about eight weeks ago the Argentine Federation announced for the first time that there would be professional women's soccer, so it's a major victory um and I think that you're beginning to see that throughout the region right um you know without ending too optimistically, right, part of the problem is that the expectation is that if women start playing professionally, um, that suddenly there will be a fan base. And there's very little, So there's very little will on the part of male dominated sporting institutions to invest the sort of the long term Uh, money and time and resources and marketing and promotion that it takes to really build a league and get it off the ground. Um, The assumption is that, you know, men's soccer just sort of appeared and was suddenly popular, but that wasn't really the case. I mean, leagues developed all the time and failed. They sort of, there was a symbiotic relationship between the media, the state and sports in the early 20th century for men that, that isn't there for women's sports now. But if it was there, then you would see, I think, sort of much more growth. So I think what you what what we would love to see is much more commitment from the media, uh, much more commitment from sort of marketing and promotion side to sort of figure out how to give women's sports the the support that it needs um, to develop and and give it the time that it needs to sort of develop a fan base.
0: I think the book really, you know, and your answer I think the right. We, if there's anything in the history of women's sports that you've shown in the book and that we can appreciate consuming the World Cup is that it's it's been struggle, persistence um often un uh unheralded that that has brought the game to the point that it is today. Um and I think that this is a really great way for people to appreciate how long women have been playing these playing sports football and others um but also the the helps us have the kind of critical approach to both the coverage or lack thereof um of the game and how we might better support those efforts as fans and uh, you know writers um and teachers ourselves so to, to wrap up real quick, I know I, I have to imagine this was a Herculean transnational effort for the both of you, but is there um, anything you're working on now or are you just taking a break these days?
1: <laughs> um, I am not 100% sure what I'm working on now, actually. Uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, both Brenda and I um, are, and, and, and Brenda, I think, had to leave, so I apologize. Um, for speaking for her, but um, no, we're both working on sort of. I think right now, really on f- focusing on the World Cup, right, uh, and focusing on trying to to use the World Cup to draw more attention to um, to the persistence, as you say, uh, the persistent sort of struggle that women's football and women's sports have had more broadly. Um, but as far as that, I I, I imagine for myself that I'm going to continue to to work on the stories of, of women's soccer in Latin America. Um, There's, I mean, one of the things that we've both discovered is, you know, since turning in the manuscript, you know, 18 months ago or 16 months ago, whenever it was that we actually turned it into the press, there has been so much more that has come out about the sport and its history, um, you know, we've found we were we've been sent pictures of women's football from Peru in 1950, or from Colombia in the 19 in the 1940s and 50s. Um, we've found out just a ton more stuff, you know. The one of the founders of the first Costa Rican team, which was founded in 1949, is still alive. And, you know, like somebody needs to get to to him and his wife, who was one of the first players on the team um, to get their stories. Right. Because they're in their late 80s, early 90s. Um, so what we're finding out is just that there's stuff coming out of the woodwork, um, which is really sort of exciting for both of us. Right. That there's so much more to be done on the topic. Uh, and and there seems to be so much more interest in it. So I I can't imagine that either of us are going to walk away from that anytime soon.
0: Wow. That, that's awesome. And and we didn't have time to talk about it, but the images that you found in the book are just incredible. Um, The pictures, both the kind of staged and then the ones of, of, of women playing sports are just incredible. I really enjoyed the book. Congratulations on completing it and your continued efforts. Um, Thank you also so much for being on the show today. Um, I very much enjoyed our conversation.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having us.
0: All right. That's take awesome. care.
1: Yeah, you too.